Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode is our second of three wrap-up episodes for Gene Wolfe's novel, Peace. So we're, I don't know, I guess on second base, or I don't know, running between second and third. I'm bad at baseball metaphors, Glenn. You're going to have to pick yep. it up here for me. <laughs> Yeah, I'm. I'm not even going to try. I don't. It was a terrible baseball metaphor. As a baseball fan, a diehard baseball fan, I'm uh, mildly offended by your attempt, but uh, we'll let it go. So yes, at any rate, uh, this is the middle of our wrap-up episodes. If you missed last time, that's when we talked about the themes and motifs that uh, we thought were most important, most significant, at least for us in our reading of this book. Next time, the final wrap-up episode, we're largely going to be exploring the craft of writing this book, and so what. What that means is that here in this middle wrap-up episode, we are going to be talking about the puzzles and mysteries in this book. But before we get to those puzzles and mysteries, we want to let you all know about a really exciting Patreon goal that we have just announced. This is one that was chosen by our current Patreon supporters, and it is for us to team up with Brent, who is my co-host on Hanging Out with the Dream King, our Neil Gaiman podcast, to do an episode on something that Gene Wolfe and Neil Gaiman co-wrote. This is A Walking Tour of the Shambles, which is a utterly fantastic guide to a, uh, a weird fiction Chicago that I would be really, really excited for us to do. And I, I think at the time that we're recording this anyway, we're really probably only need about 10 new people to join us on Patreon for us to hit that goal. So if that's something that excites you as well and you aren't already with us on Patreon, uh, that would be a great time to join us. If you're not already with us on Patreon, you should consider joining us anyway, regardless of uh, this awesome goal that I'm also really excited about that's coming up. Uh, because Patreon isn't just episodes of the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast that we've you know not aired or whatever. It's for all of Quake Temple Media. So there's bonus episodes of Elder Sign, bonus episodes of Hanging Out with the Dream King, different kinds of team-ups. We do a new episode every month. There is so much rich material on Patreon that, you know... You should go check it out if you haven't already. It also helps us out a lot, quite frankly. So please at least go to our Patreon page, check it out, look at what we have to offer and make a choice. That would be really great for us if you did that. Um, also join us. I mean, that's really the goal here <laughs> anyway. But <laughs> let's talk about our episode today of uh, Peace as we're kind of closing out our coverage of the novel Glenn, as you said, we're going to be looking at the puzzles and mysteries. I think in our last episode, we said, I don't know, some of these didn't interest us as much on a reread as initially they did when we were working our way slowly through the novel. But there are still some lingering mysteries to engage with and puzzles in the novel. That includes stuff like, where's this novel taking place? Um what is the deal with these weird five-year swings that we see in the novel? Uh, what's going on with some of the people that kind of disappear off page? And, you know, who's Doris? I, I, there's just a lot of questions we need to answer. And that's the kind of thing we'll be looking at today. Again, I should say, this won't be exhaustive of every possible question that's in the book. If you're interested in that stuff, there's a huge archive on Earthnet of people bringing these things up, uh, these kinds of questions. But today we're going to look at the things that I think have mostly just lingered for us as readers and open the door for the conversation rather than um, closing it behind us as we as we end our coverage of this show. Right. And where we're going to start here is two questions just to establish 
when <laughs> this story takes place and where this story takes place. I don't know that I've got anything new really to say here, but I think that this is a the place where we are going to come up with our definitive answers. And so we'll start with the timeline and, and the dates, right? When When is this book set or when are the different chapters of this book set? And this is actually a lot of fun for me. This is something I really enjoyed about Peace is that we don't get ever, you know, at any of the chapter titles, you know, we don't get something like... Uh, Olivia, colon, and a date, right? The way that many authors would do, or we don't get any real dated signposts in the text. There are a few that we get, but not very many of them. And so for me, as a trained historian, often having to ask, hey, when is this text from? When was it written? That's super fun. This was a great exercise for me. And I think the key pieces of evidence for me here are, one, books that we can date, and then two, the only date that Weir ever gives us, which is that the freezer prank happens in 1938, and he tells us that he had been working at the plant for two years at that point, uh, two years having been out of school. But in print, I will say, I I have seen some scholars arguing about these dates, and I'm just going to really only talk about two of them. William Schuyler, who wrote an article in the New York Review of Science Fiction from 1996, which actually had like a dedicated issue on peace that year, which is very cool. Uh, He thinks that Weir was born in 1904, but I'm going to say that that is too early. And the reason I think that is because of one of the books that we can date, and that is this Ludwig biography of Napoleon that was not available in English until 1926, which would make Weir 22 when he was still living with Olivia, which we just know is not correct, right? That's one of the things that he tells us what age he was when his parents came back. So we know that that can't be right. Michael Andre Drusi has Weir born in 1914, which I think is probably right. And in fact, he uses all of the same evidence that I did when I was you know, doing this without having looked at what anybody has ever said about this book during our recap episodes, right? Uh, being told that in 1938, Weir had been working at the plant for two years lets us do some math. And if we assume that Weir was out of school in the summer of 1936 and that Weir has only a bachelor's degree and not a master's degree, then we get 1914. And that also means that he was 12 when this Ludwig biography of Napoleon came out in English, which lines up precisely with what we are told about his having read it and his having, you know, annoyed people about his having <laughs> read it, this business with the statue that Julia Smart gave Olivia and so on. And so what really matters here is just that we have a, a sense really of when the chapters are set. I actually don't think that, you know, we need to quibble about whether Weir was born in 1914 or 1915, because we just need a sense of roughly when these chapters are taking place. But chapter one, I think, is pretty firmly set in 1919 and 1920. Chapter two is mostly then in 1922 or 1923. And then we're lived with Olivia until the second half of the 1920s. I I think probably 1926. But, you know, again, the precision there doesn't really matter all that much. Chapter three is also set in 1922 or 1923, or at least, you know, the frame of chapter three, I should say, right? The birthday party is set then. But Smart's story is set a few years before that, though it cannot be earlier than 1918 because we know that Janet Turner's brother was killed in France in the First World War. So that story is set sometime between 1918 and 1923, and I would assume probably more like, you know, 1919, 1920, something like that. And then chapter four is in the 1950s. I don't know that there's any way to be much more precise than that or any need to be much more precise than that, to be honest. And then chapter five is the 1970s, probably the mid-1970s, I think. And 
just to, I guess, sum all this up, Brandon, none of this that I've just said here is a revision of anything that you and I talked about in our recap episodes. This is what we have always thought has been going on, or at least what I always have thought has been going on at any rate. But I do think it's you know probably at least a little bit useful for us to lay it all out here. I think so. And I think that this will help some readers who are wondering about questions like, hey, why doesn't Weir know about this housing development that was built? Uh, Did that happen while he was in college? Did he leave town for college? Is that why we get these kinds of feelings about Weir kind of losing five years of his life. To me, that would indicate that he might have been in like a five-year engineering program, um, even though he came back to town to work at the factory or something over the summers and then got a job there. There's this sense that we get in the novel that Weir has lost time in relation to what is changing in town. Um, And we don't know exactly what that's about. He does this with even like Lois Arbuthnot. He has trouble. He's like, she could be, you know, 30 to 35 or 35 to 40. There's this like five-year swing that shows up as a motif a lot in the novel. I've read, you know, on online theories by uh, prominent wolf reviewers and wolf readers who suggests that, you know, maybe Weir had gone to prison for killing his father. I don't think that's suggested by the text. Um, and I don't want to dig too deep into some of these theories that, you know, Glenn, you and I talked off mic about trying to stick to uh, to scholarly articles. Uh, but I've read too many conspiracy theories online to do that strictly. Uh, but I'm going to do the best I can. Um, but yeah, I think that for people who are more inclined to dig deep into the text and to look for evidence of things that I think you and I once again didn't find in the text, and that'll become more clear as we continue on with this Puzzles and Mysteries episode, um, that having a timeline is going to be your best argument for defending some of the readings of the text that are available to, to any given reader, especially the darker readings of the text. Right. Yeah, I'll say a few things in in response to that, Brandon. One, just to say that, yes, we know that Weir had to have left Cashinsville in order to attend university because there is not one in Cashinsville. Now, we don't know how far away he went. Possibly he just attended university at whatever university it is that Professor Peacock used to teach at as well. Um, I suspect, no, I suspect that he went further afield than that, like uh, his father and his aunt had done. But there's nothing in the text, actually, that ever talks about that. Those are years that, uh, for the most part, don't exist, except for the one line that we get about his having acquired a car in his junior year, which I think we will talk about more later on another question. But I have read Mark Aramini's write up about peace in his really awesome book called Between Light and Shadow. And and Mark talks about some of these readings of peace that argue that there is a five-year gap, that we are missing five years of Weir's timeline. I just don't think that's true. I don't think that there are five unaccounted for years in Weir's life. You can only get to that type of reading if you are taking literally when Weir says things like 45 or 50 or 55, rather than thinking that he's rounding here in much the same way that uh, I think we all round. In fact, I'm probably going to do it at some point in this episode when I talk about, or maybe the next episode when I say, I first read Peace 20 years ago. That's not literally true, 
but it was 2006 and I'm rounding. <laughs> I'm going to round. And so, and, and in fact, when in the future people do Puzzles and Mysteries episodes about our podcast about Gene Wolfe, which I don't know, maybe that will be a thing. They're going to be confused because in the very first episode, I said 15 years. And of course, the solution to that mystery is simply that it was closer to 15 when we started. Now it's closer to 20. And in both cases, I was rounding. Um, all of the 1990s are now 30 years ago for me, even though that's technically not true. But the 1990s were 30 years ago, right? This is how we communicate with each other. This is how Weir is writing as well. He's rounding his age. He's talking about times in the past, how distant they are from him in these rounding terms, the way that we all do in our speech. So if you aren't taking those things literally, which I do not think you should, then there is really no mystery there. I also think, I mean, this five-year period of being away from Cashinsville is reasonable to someone who is getting an engineering degree and not getting a master's, or it's all just five years of school. So these five-year programs do exist. I think my grandfather, uh, I don't think my grandfather was an architectural engineer. He was an architectural engineer. And I'm fairly certain his schooling was five years for that. And that was in um, the 1950s. Yeah, the 40s or the 50s uh, is when is when he went to college. And see, even here, we're talking about time, you know, time passed. I think my grandfather, he would have, you know, probably said, you know, sometime, you know, in the 50s when I was in school or whatever, you know, because he was in school during the Korean War. He was in um, ROTC. So he missed uh, serving in that war in Korea, but he served on the on the back lines um, as an Air Force lieutenant. So yeah, there's uh, kind of this sense, especially as you get into old age. And I think about listening to my grandfather's stories of this of this time when he was in college. He used to love to tell us stories about that because he loved Penn State. Um, that there's just all these kind of fudges in numbers, and we're just also isn't that attentive to other people or their ages, especially women. And so I think this motif of the five years coming up does set off alarm bells to a reader. It certainly did to me as I was reading this book, but I think it's just easy to explain that Weir was in college for five years getting his engineering degree. And then that that's why he was away and missed some stuff. And he also doesn't like to go to the part of town that reminds him of um, his childhood necessarily. Uh, but we'll talk probably more about that and, and his relationship with his childhood as we continue to look at these puzzles and mysteries. Right. Let's uh, let's get into where Cashinsville is one more time. We've already spent a lot of airtime actually on this question, <laughs> but here in this wrap-up episode, I will say definitively that uh, we're not in Kansas anymore. We never were in Kansas, though I have thought for decades that, that, that we were. Uh, but also, we are not in some type of mirror universe, despite the fact that, uh, well, one, I spent hours coming up with that hypothesis and thought it was cool, uh, but it's just wrong. Uh, and so my definitive answer here, and this is, I think, where you and I might disagree, Brandon, but my definitive answer is that Cashinsville is located in either central or southern Illinois. Some of the evidence I'll bring up here for this is that Chicago and St. Louis and Indianapolis are considered to be the sort of landmark important cities in Weir's imagination here. And not just Weir's imagination, but also the region's imagination, it seems. There is also proximity to the Memphis region, where his maternal grandfather lives. Also, I would just will say that the landscape, as it's described, is not dissimilar to the Shawnee National Forest in 
Southern Illinois, where we get the the confluence of the Ohio and the Mississippi. And then also, finally, Peoria is a place of publication for one of Lou Gold's books. Peoria, Illinois, I should say, as, as a native Illinoisan, I don't feel like Peoria needs to have that put on it. But of course, if you, I don't know, live in Australia, you don't know where Peoria is. But it's in Illinois. It's in central Illinois. It's a place of publication for one of Lou Gold's books. And that doesn't strike Weir as some distant place. He doesn't wonder how Lou Gold got this rare book uh, that was published in Peoria, if you know, as if Peoria was some very far place. Uh, it just seems to be a place in the region here. So that's my final answer. But Brandon, I wonder if you still disagree with me. I do still disagree with you uh, and, and think they're in um, Ohio. And that's simply because of this William Clark Quantrill line. Uh, if you're reading in the Orb 2012 edition, this is on page 252, where Lois tells Weir that William Clark Quantrill was born near here and Quantrill was born in Ohio. So to me, this is like, I don't know why that would be in here. He did end up moving to Illinois, like in his teens or early 20s, but he was born in Ohio. And I don't know why that would be in here otherwise. So that's my, that's your evidence. You have uh, kind of a preponderance of evidence there. And I've got one line. We'll let the audience weigh that. Our listeners weigh that as, as they will and see where we come out. Yeah, that is the one line I think that suggests maybe Ohio, which I do think is probably the only other candidate. And we would be thinking about Southern Ohio near the Ohio River. Um, but yeah, Quantrill, I mean, he was born in Ohio and and in that Southern Ohio region, but no one really thought of him as an Ohioan, right? Because he's, in, in terms of his professional career, he's actually mostly active in, in Kansas and Missouri during, uh, well, before and during the Civil War, and then actually gets as far west as Texas, and then ends up back in Kentucky. That's actually, but central Kentucky. So not the, even the part of Kentucky that is actually below Ohio. And yeah, I mean, Lois does say, he says he was born near here, but then says he was a Midwesterner, just like Grant and Sherman. So yeah, I think that's the one the one piece of evidence that would suggest Ohio. But I think that if we're dealing with uh, outside of Cincinnati, uh, I think that the geographic pinpoints here, the cities that we'd be talking about would be very different. Also, the landscape would be very different. And Peoria would strike us as weird. So I don't know. Ultimately, maybe this is just more evidence that actually we are just in some kind of weird mirror universe after all, <laughs> even if the river is actually flowing in the right direction. But yeah, as you said, Brandon, we will let listeners decide. And also, I think ultimately it doesn't matter all that much. I think it does matter that we're not in California or Australia or the Yukon or something like that. But ultimately, whether this is, uh, you know, which, uh, which part of the 300 mile swath of the Ohio River we are in, Maybe doesn't matter all that much. I think you're absolutely right about that. You know, I think the the kind of um, specifics of the geography are meant to capture the sense of being in the Midwest in a river valley. You know, even that Quantrill line about him being born near here is followed up immediately with the, like the next sentence with him saying uh, he's a Midwesterner. And I think that that's kind of the level at which Wolf wants us to engage with the region is to say like, this is a novel about growing up in the Midwest and what formed the Midwest in this country more than it's saying like, it's super important that we're lived in an imaginary town in Ohio, in the Ohio River Valley. That's not as important as Wolf trying to capture the sense of the formation of the Midwest as being part of America and capturing this kind of American Midwest identity. 
All right. Well, we will stop our uh, squabbling and bickering about this question. <laughs> and uh, let's move on to another question that I don't know, we might have some bickering about, but a question that I think is more fun, if not necessarily more relevant, which is to talk about Julia Smart's ghost story again and uh, definitively say what it is that we think happened to Tilly's wife. Or maybe another way to think about it is to answer the question of whether or not we think Tilly's house was haunted. Yeah, I'm not sure that Tilly's house was haunted. Uh, to me, it's more likely that Tilly like experimented on his family with his potions and alchemical, uh, I don't know, machinations. And his family either died or was driven insane, as seems to be the case with his wife, uh, as he continued these experiments. And eventually, Tilly turned to experimenting on himself. And so it doesn't really feel to me as though, you know, in general and also, you know, throughout the novel, that ghosts can really affect the real world. We have tons of ghost stories, but we don't see ghosts like changing or moving things in the world. So I think here either Smart is embellishing the story as he's telling it, Weir could be embellishing it as he claims to be doing, as he's retelling the story to us. And I think Tilly's wife was hidden away in that extra room for the week or so that Smart lived there before Tilly died. And so maybe we have a story of an inconvenient woman here, as I've, I've kind of termed it. Maybe since Smart didn't know that the wife was stuck in there, that after Tilly died, the wife died of starvation or, or neglect or something. And, and maybe that sense that like the, she died because Smart ignored the fact that she was there or ignored the fact that she was there even while she was living with Tilly is why Smart is telling the story as though he's on trial for his life. Um, and then we get, you know, Blaine's revision of the story in chapter four that I think serves a few purposes in terms of looking at this story again and revisiting it. One, Blaine's revisiting of the story of Tilly's ghost story reminds us that Weir has embellished this story himself, as I've been pointing out. And so it's entirely possible. I get this feeling sometimes in reading the story in peace that Weir could have added this whole circus side adventure, though there's a lot of reasons why that can't be the case, but it feels like it could be. Uh, and that the circus business is separate from the Tilly ghost story, you know, and that kind of calls into question what part of the story is Weir's embellishment and what is what Smart has told us. And secondly, you know, in, in Blaine's uh, retelling or revisiting of the story, uh, I think we get some more of the truth of the matter. Weir tells a lot of ghost and fairy stories throughout the novel, but the solution to both the affair of the Chinese egg and also Smart's ghost story seem to be bound up together in Blaine's final conversation with Weir. So I'm going to take Blaine's word when we see Blaine in chapter four, even though Blaine is acting a little senile. I don't really think there's reason to doubt that he's telling the the truth uh, as he remembers it. And he's an adult and has less maybe stakes in uh, misremembering this story. So I do believe that Smart hadn't discovered Tilly's wife until she died. Uh, there are questions raised by Blaine's revision of the ghost story told by Smart one of which is the overlap of imagery of Mrs. Tilly's death that seems to match uh, some imagery of Olivia's relationship with Smart, particularly when Weir's Aunt Olivia's bath attendant and 
Smart is doing alchemy in the basement, this kind of resonance of imagery of how Mrs. Tilly was found in this tub of menthol and Tilly's experimenting in the house. So I guess my suspicion is that Weir sees himself as someone who has taken on some elements of the personas from men, particularly Blaine and Smart, and has blended some of their personality and life with what he and his life with what he imagines their life to have been. So that might have gone really far afield. I guess to summarize here, um, there was no ghost. There was a woman dying in a secret room. And that's why Smart feels culpable in some sense for, if not uh, Tilly's death, then Tilly's wife's death. But all the circus stuff is still a big question mark to me. Yeah, I agree in in spirit, certainly with everything that you just said, Brandon. I don't think that the house was haunted either. I think it's super important that we keep in mind that Weir tells us that he's embellishing a story that he already knows Julia Smart was embellishing, right? So that we have to question which which details are are true, or at least we have to question the, I don't know, percentage of veracity of, <laughs> of all of the claims in, in the story. But my sense, even just taking the story as written, my sense is that Tilly's wife was already already dead in the house, but that it had been recent, that she died before Julia Smart got there, but maybe not all that long ago. And I'm thinking here in particular about the state of the kitchen when Julia Smart moves in, the dishes undone, uh, mold growing all over these plates with half-eaten food and so on, Tilly not in good shape himself feels like a person who is not used to keeping house, not used to taking care of himself, suddenly having to do that and not being up to the task. So my sense of this is not that Tilly was experimenting on his wife, keeping her in this locked room. My sense is that what we have walked into here, or what Julia Smart has walked into here, is a family that is not doing well after the death of their child, which I think is a really important background detail to this story. And that Tilly's wife died from some cause. We don't know what it is, but I think that we might just say grief. And possibly it was some self-inflicted harm. Possibly it was not taking care of herself in some way, but that she died recently and Tilly just could not deal with that. And I mean, deal with that in in a certainly an emotional, psychological sense, but I think also deal with that just in a flat logistical sense of getting her buried, having a funeral for her and so on. And I have the feeling that he just, because he had formaldehyde in the house, because that's what his business is, that he just preserved her in this room because he just couldn't function in the world that way, couldn't deal with the loss of his wife so quickly after the loss of his child as well. And that he himself was just dying here at this point. So I, I read this as a real like gothic tragedy here that doesn't have any murder in it, but that has just grief suffused everywhere. I think that that approach to the story is one that really resonates with so much of what else is going on in the novel. The death of Bobby Black, you know, and how that impacted Weir's life. The imagery of the, you know, dead infants, which I think we've yet to satisfactorily explain. And I, I don't think we'll be able to do that in this episode. Um, and just all of these things that happen 
that are covered actually in the text itself of peace by Weir with these diversions and these ways of stopping the emotion from breaking through the emotion of grief in particular with these clever little ghost stories or fairy tales or ways really of um, depersonalizing and distancing oneself. Weir is depersonalizing and and distancing himself from the events that have impacted him. And this is the mind on trauma, basically. And so I think by looking at the story in the way that you have, Glenn, um, you've given kind of like a mini hermeneutic with which to approach the rest of the text as a text that uses, you know, the fact that, well, Charlie Turner was saved to cover the two lines we get about Tilly's, the death of Tilly's son. And we get to look at how silly he is as a man who's trying to, you know, do all these sideshow things and realizing, not realizing that smart has been living in a house with a dead woman and hasn't even questioned why his, he's gotten the sweetheart deal with the arrangement with Tilly that he's gotten. You know, he's just like, of course, good things happen to me, but not really understanding that this is the expression of someone's grief and trauma. And I think that same kind of approach, maybe, I don't know if this is uh, going to happen, but maybe this same kind of approach could be applied to Lois's exit, you know, on stage right from the novel. Glenn, what do you think happened to Lois? Yeah. So I am... Um not someone who exists on the internet very much, but I am aware because of our own listeners, I am aware that people on the internet seem to really want Weir to have killed Lois. And I just don't think that happened. I don't think anyone killed Lois, at least not in this book anyway, right? And so for me, it just I have a very simple final answer for this question, which is just that she was distraught and embarrassed about this event. And she left town like Weir said she did. I, I don't think that there's any real great puzzle or mystery here, unless we're wondering exactly, you know, where she went to and what she's up to, which is a question we will answer in our next episode. But uh, Brandon, how do you feel about this? I mean, have you come down on the side of, no, we're we're killed Lois with the gun that night? I, I don't think so. I really do think, and, and this I, I hope uh, I made clear in our last episode, that the evil that we see in the novel isn't we're being a private uh, sociopath or psychopath who is telling this story in order to confess and unburden himself at the end of his life of all the murders that he's committed. Um, to me, the, the evil that we find in this book, uh, the kind of malevolence that so many readers have picked up on that is right beneath the surface is about the skewed morality as it's presented to us in the book and realizing that so much of what we take for granted as being normal um, has this kind of negative moral shading to it. And that there is evil in this book. I think it's it's clear, but I don't think the evil is as simple as Weir is an evil man. It's that people do careless things all the time. Weir's parents leave and abandon him after Bobby Black has died. Weird is very upfront with the role that he played in Bobby Black's death. Um, but why be upfront with that? Weir is very upfront with the fact that he slept with Sherry Gold. Why be upfront with these um, acts of either, I don't know, culpability or outright moral harm when 
you're going to hide what happened to some other people, you know, the man in the freezer or, you know, what happened to Lois here. So I'm with you. I, I don't, you know, I think that Weir got the gun away from her. I think that she did leave town. Hopefully she got a better job somewhere or something. But yeah, this whole thing was kind of like a couple of weeks of being an adult and having a kind of a fling and having an adventure. And it just, it didn't work out. And I don't know why Weir would explicitly then imitate someone like Humphrey Bogart's, you know, detective characters, Chandler-esque detectives, unless he's doing an Oedipus type of thing where the detective is the criminal. Doesn't seem to me like that's the case, though I'm sure an argument could be made for that being the case. I don't see it in the text. No, I don't either. And as we said in our discussion episode for that chapter, I just don't think that Weir's behavior after the fact is the behavior of someone who is trying to uh, not at all be suspected of murdering somebody. Right, I right. mean, he he just is not laying low. So yeah, I don't I don't think there's any good evidence for that. Uh, we get a similar kind of question, though. Uh, it turns out lots of people are very interested in who killed Olivia. And almost everyone assumes that she was murdered, right? That not that she was killed in some kind of accident, but that she was murdered. Uh, I've seen people write up that this was by Professor Peacock, uh, by Julia Smart himself, or even by Weir. Uh, What do you make of these hypotheses, Brandon? Well, I want to say I think the origin of the Professor Peacock as murderer comes from an old Earthnet a chain of emails about this novel uh, where I, I listen, I don't know the person who wrote this. They wrote a really awesome write up on peace, um, but I don't know them in real life. And so I don't want to say that the story about their hint about Professor Peacock is kind of an apocryphal story. Uh, but I think in a generous sense, in a way that's not meant to be insulting, I do think it's a little bit apocryphal because it's one in this great write-up about peace where there's not textual evidence offered for why Professor Peacock had killed Olivia. Instead, it's a conversation with Wolf after the fact that they had where Wolf uh, in this, re- you know, telling about why it it is the case that Professor Peacock killed Olivia, that Wolf said, yes, this is what Professor Peacock has done. I'm not satisfied with that. I wish I were. I need textual evidence. And later on, we'll maybe look at some textual evidence as why that is the case. I just don't see it being the case that Peacock killed Olivia out of a kind of romantic jealousy. Peacock is certainly romantically jealous of Smart, but Aunt Olivia is still sleeping with Professor Peacock after she gets married. Now, of course, I don't know, maybe Peacock feels strung along and like he wants more. And that could be a motive for murder. We know Professor Peacock owns a car. My reading is very different from having one of our main characters of the novel kill Olivia. Um, And I'll talk about that in a moment. But Glenn, I do want to get your take on these sort of hypotheses of Peacock, Weir, or Smart killing Olivia. Well, certainly, I don't think that Olivia was murdered 
because of romantic jealousy by anyone. I don't think at all that that's what happened. Maybe more broadly, I do want to address just the phenomenon of Wolf saying things about his books, which is that (laughs) my sense of this, and I have not read every place where he has made these comments, but the sense that I have of this is that Wolf has two possible answers to questions like this when, when people pose them at cons or in interviews. One, he just says yes. to whatever whatever it is you've just said or he deflects and i'm going to be honest and say that i think in both of those cases what's happening is that wolf doesn't remember he's being asked these questions a decade or decades after he's written these books and in the meantime has written many other books and he doesn't remember these books as well as we do and i think you know anyone who is a writer i think knows that that that's how this works we know that's how this works on this show listeners know what we said t- 20 episodes better than we do we don't remember you know, this is the same phenomenon yeah it's like when you talk to an actor or listen to i know i think you're listening to talkville right now but like you hear the like i listen to lots of actor interviews i'm super interested in you know performance and 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 like how tv shows get made and all this stuff and you hear an actor somebody will come up and be like um oh, what did you think of the story on the script and they're like i had three scenes in that episode i don't remember the script and i certainly don't know the story now i'm not saying wolf is like that i think he gives great attention to what he's writing when he's writing it um and he loves to play with his audience that is clear he is a prankster but um, he is, I think, I think it's fair to say, and I've read a lot of interviews. I made this argument in an essay I wrote about fifth head that Wolf even plays games with his interviewers sometimes. And so that's why for me, the apocryphal stories about what Wolf has said, even if they are in an interview that was recorded, I need classic literary criticism, particularly like something from the new criticism of if it's in the text, that's where you defend it. That's where I'm coming from as a critic of these books. So I, it's not enough for me to go on uh, the authorial intention, especially a decade after the fact. Right. We never coordinated about this. Certainly, we did not do that before we started recording episodes. You know, We never went into this thinking that that's going to be our unified, united approach to how to read, well, how to read books, I guess. But it is actually the approach that that each of us as individuals, and then also, therefore, both of us collectively as the podcast have, is a, a real uh, preference for death of the author and to just just ignore things that authors have said about their own their own plots and interviews and so on. And so, yeah, I don't think there's any evidence in the text to suggest that. And I think there might be evidence in the text to suggest that something else is happening uh, than that Olivia was murdered because of romantic jealousy. Yeah, and I think that, that like, we talked about this off mic, which we almost never do, but it's because when when we were rereading this book as a bit of leisure reading, just for the enjoyment of it, the same line jumped out to us kind of late in chapter four when Weir is at the Golds and he's offered these Dewberry's uh, pastries and suddenly he says he doesn't like them anymore when like the whole book he's been eating these pastries like as a kid and stuff and we know that Aunt Olivia was killed walking across uh, diagonal the street from McAfee's department store to Dewberry's and she was struck there at that intersection or at that section of street. And I just, it felt to me like with this, I don't like Dewberry's pastries anymore, that it could have been uh, a Dewberry's truck, a delivery truck or, you know, the delivering bread or something that, that hit her. 
Uh, and that's why Weird doesn't eat those pastries anymore. Yeah, as you said, we had this conversation off mic, which, as you also said, we almost never do. But in fact, we got to hang out with each other in person for the first time <laughs> in quite a long time, actually, uh, just over uh, over some coffee while we were in the middle of doing our rereads, which was fantastic. And we tried not to talk about the book since we do that anyway, but uh, we wound up doing it. And I agree. I think that Weir's middle-aged dislike for these particular pastries from like one of the two pastry shops in town has to do with Olivia's death. He just doesn't eat from there anymore because he has negative associations with that place. It might just be because she was killed in front of it and she was going to it. I mean, I think what we are meant to understand is that she had just been having sex with Jimmy McAfee in his office at his department store and then was going to get herself some pastries after that and then I guess was going to take them home or something like that and was killed crossing the street, jaywalking as uh, us Midwesterners do. So yeah, it might have been a a Dewberry's delivery truck or something like that that hit her. But there is also, I think, some suspicion that it was Weir who ran her over with a car, his car, intentionally here. And I, I do want to read into the microphone the line that might might serve as some evidence for that for us to chew on. And this is very early in Chapter 2. It's on pages 59 and 60 in the uh, Orb 2012 edition that we've been working from. And here, Weir is writing about Olivia. He says, She subscribed to intellectual and scientific periodicals that would never otherwise have been seen in Cashinsville. And when she had read them, gave them to the library so that a stranger to the town, a drummer, say, just disembarking from a train and seeking an hour's innocent reading before a night spent at Abbott's Hotel, would have thought the town to be a very hotbed of intellectuality, when the fact was that you might have killed it all if you were so fortunate as to possess a motor car on any spring day when it proceeded, with pansies and lily of the valley on its small hat, from McAfee's department store diagonally across Main Street to Dewberry's Bakery. And so, you know, this is one of the two places where we learn about Olivia's death. This is where we get some of the the details in particular here, like, you know, what is in her hat and so on. The grammar of this is sometimes held up as indicating that Weir is actually talking about him himself, that this is the car that he got when he was a junior in college, that it's important that this was spring. That what is happening here is that he had just driven his car home to visit over spring break from where he's been attending university and hit Olivia with the car. Other things that people will bring into this argument is that Weir is estranged from Julius Smart, even though he's employed by Julius Smart. Julius Smart has not talked to him since the the funeral, since Olivia's death. And so that, I think, is evidence that this was an accident, or at least believed by Julia Smart to have been an accident. And so uh, employing Weir with a decent job is uh, about as forgiving as he's going to be, you know, because there's no way to not blame someone, even if even if said incident was unintentional, was not murder, was an accidental death, accidental killing. Uh, so yeah, that's the hypothesis there. I find that much more plausible than that this was romantic jealousy, but I'm still not sure I'm convinced of that. How about you, Brandon? I'm just not, I'm also not convinced of it. I think Smart, who is very wealthy, would have found a way to disinherit Weir, you know, and Weir would not have inherited the company. Um, In that same sort of apocryphal interview or question and answer session or conversation with Wolf that I mentioned earlier that can be found on Earthnet if you look up Peace, the author of this did confirm 
saying that in this conversation with Wolf, Wolf said that, you know, we're inherited the juice company because from Smart because Weir was still on Olivia's air. And that, that, you know, this is a work of realist fiction and so forth. But I don't know why being Olivia's heir, he would have inherited anything from from Smart. Uh, after Smart dies, that all could have been worked out because Smart would have been Olivia's heir had they been married just naturally. So there's all these ways of reading into the text. To me, um, the stuff about motor cars in this novel, the point of them is that they're super cool machines, but maybe they have also destroyed the country, that this is another case of improving America out of its goodness out of its own sense of place out of its own sense of home that we see with smart and so again i think we get this 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 pile on of imagery of motor cars um these lines dropped about peacock owning a motor car about we're owning one and then we're talking about maybe how horses are better and then the way the novel questions progress but then balances that with the fascination that we have with the objects that we get, that there is a real complexity of emotion that we're being offered as readers of this novel. I don't think that complexity of emotion that's in the text is meant to indicate that Weir is accidentally offing people all the time or even intentionally offing people. It could be that like Smart just simply never liked Weir. And when would Weir have killed Olivia? I don't think we know exactly what age she died. Um, And so would it have been in that summer when he came home with his car uh, after he'd already earned enough money working at the factory to buy a car? I just don't think so. I think it was a tragic accident that Weir says he doesn't even realize the way it's impacted his life. And smart could have just said like, okay, I have no obligation to you anymore as a human being other than you were Olivia's nephew and you lived with us, but like, I'm not your dad. And yeah, I'll, I'll make sure you're looked out for it. Do your job at the factory. You'll always have a place here, but like, we don't need anything more than that. You have a dad, you know, you have, you have a life. You don't, I'm not your dad. Smart strikes me as the type of person that was even after marriage to Olivia, more obsessed with figuring out how to turn potatoes into orange juice than even working on his marriage because his wife was, I don't know, stepping out with a bunch of different people, <laughs> you know? So there's all, all of these other complexities here that um, come into play when assigning someone blame for Olivia's murder. Yeah, I don't even think we need to read Julia Smart as angry or or upset or vindictive here either to explain away the lack of relationship between the two of them as adults. I, I, this could be grief. Uh, I don't want to be reminded of Olivia. I don't want to be reminded of her death. I don't want to be reminded of the fact that I was well aware that she was stepping out on me because I'm a, a weird mad scientist working on potato juice in the basement. And anytime I see you or talk to you, I'm going to be reminded of that. So I don't wish you any ill will. In fact, I'm, I remember those times fondly, but the thing is I don't want to remember them. And uh, so I'm just going to avoid you. Uh, you know, I think we could just read it like that, read it as, read it as grief. So I don't know that there's any particularly great mystery there. I do think that Olivia was killed accidentally. I don't think that there, well, I just don't think that this is actually a puzzle or a mystery that we are meant to solve. I think that there are a lot more accidents in this book than, than many other readers do, I think. 
Yeah, I, I think that you and I do take that approach to the novel. I mean, there is finally this kind of lingering question of the letter from Robert Peacock to Julius Smart in the final uh, moments of this ch- novel, you know, the last chapter where there is this kind of more suggestion of this overlap between smart and weird, like this kind of sense of merging um, that again, I explain c- kind of maybe in this uh, Jungian sense of taking on personas or seeing people as archetypes that we're just, he, he never learned how to kind of stand on his own without really imitating other people, which is a case of arrested development, which makes complete sense that he takes on these aspects of others and that in this final uh, moment of his life, moments of his life, he's uh, thinking about the way he's been formed by these people. uh, And this, this desk is kind of a representation of him having taken on aspects of smart I don't know what to make of the letter he can't access between Professor Peacock and Julius Smart, and it could be a confession, but that's not clear. That's not clear in the text. They were friends, and it could just be a letter of condolence as well. The fact that it's not clear at all what it is, that we know so little about their friendship or relationship, other than they were romantic rivals and friends first, uh, doesn't mean that one is a murderer. <laughs> You know, it just doesn't mean that. Right. Yeah, I forgot that that was a piece of evidence that's often invoked here in the the reading of Professor Peacock as the murderer of Olivia. I don't think that that's what that letter is at all. And in fact, I think that the textual evidence suggests that what that letter is, is Professor Peacock writing this letter to Julia Smart, explaining that he was really in love with Olivia and you were my friend and I can't believe that you did this to me. The sort of thing that many of us, perhaps even most of us, would find really difficult to actually say in person to someone, but nonetheless want to say, want to get off our chests. And why I think that that's what the letter says is that in writing about Olivia's funeral, Weir writes that Professor Peacock wasn't there, and that at the time he thought that that meant that Professor Peacock just didn't care, but he now thinks differently. He thinks the opposite. And it's because he found this letter in Smart's desk when he took over the company, and he's read it. And so he knows that Peacock loved her. And also from his own, uh, what what has happened to him, his own experience of having a stroke the day after hearing about Sherry Gold's death. So there's there's a, another overlap there with these father figures that Weir has, where he learns, he takes his own experience and and he projects onto them what he thinks they might have been feeling or what's going on. It starts first with his grandfather, um, and then it moves on to these to these other men. And so that's another kind of way into this novel is seeing Weir as projecting his own experience and emotions onto these men he sees as uh, father figures, as men who, even though they were only trying to sleep with his aunt, did invest some time and energy into their relationship with him, which is very different than what happened with his own father, at least as far as we can tell. We'll talk about that a little bit more uh, later on. Yeah, we actually are getting close to that question on the outline, but uh, we've got one in between, and I think now is probably the time to leave Olivia behind and uh, move on to talking about Doris. And I guess the question is, Brandon, are we meant to know who Doris is? Or, or really, maybe another way of putting it is, is Doris someone else who has shown up in the story? Yeah, I, I still can't answer this question. So I'm going to ramble here. I'll be reading off some notes, but I will be rambling for the most part uh, in order to confuse 
diffuse the issue further so that maybe people <laughs> stop asking the question or I can stop asking myself this question. I mean, I guess this is also another part of the novel that allow us and another question that allows us to dig into some of the circus business that I kind of brought up earlier with wondering whether the circus part of Smart Story was an embellishment by Weir. So I'm going to combine a lot of issues here. So first of all, Charles Turner, the dog boy, uh, and Weir are roughly the same age, right? So maybe it is really unlikely then that Weir actually visited the Turners and like saved Charles Turner's life when Turner was like four years old. But maybe he did learn about the story from Charles in one of the letters or something. Uh, we see a lot of dog boy imagery throughout the novel, and this is striking imagery too. It's tied to the smart story in particular with the discovery of Tilly's wife. It's tied to Weir's father somehow. It's tied to sex with Margaret Lorne. Uh, so I, yeah, this this kind of circus business shows up again and again, and the imagery is very complicated. But that's all to say that it's no less complicated when we look at the Doris story as well. It really feels as though the Doris story should be about someone we know from the novel, or at least the child of someone we know. I have poured over the message boards and forums and so forth. I've read the articles, and there's a lot of like vibes out there to suggest that Doris is Sherry Gold's child, maybe Weir and Sherry Gold's child. But I don't buy it because you have to ignore all the things we learn about Mr. Mason. So why have Mason be this shadowy figure with, uh, you know, three daughters himself, two by one wife, his first wife, one by his second wife. Uh, Doris is, you know, the child of the wife that Mr. Mason loved. Clearly, that's part of the story. Uh, and I think that this marriage business is important here, right? Weir has never married. And while it's clear he's sexually active, it's by no means the case that he's got daughters in a strip show whose pictures he's glad to receive from a dog boy. Um, and, and so this all this makes it really hard for me to believe that these girls are Weir's daughters because Doris is half sisters with the other girls in the strip show. Furthermore, the story has this kind of tragic Cinderella story element to it. It's a modeled off of a Cinderella pattern, but ends in a tragedy. And it has this sense of finality to it that this death of Doris should be like, oh my God, like this is so tragic that we are learning this. This is really frustrating to, to me as a reader because I can't think of any character in this story who we've met who'd have a couple of daughters and be sneaky about it, you know, marry a second wife who dies and so on. That would make the gut punch of Doris's suicide carry a ton of weight in the novel. It could be Smart's secret family, maybe, or Tilly's. You know, people have suggested that Julia Smart's middle name is T, and it could be a maiden name. And so Tilly is uh, really Smart's family name, and that that's all caught up in this somehow. It could be here also to remind us the Doris story uh, patterned on Cinderella could be here to remind us that once events have taken place and we look back on them, we often organize stories from the past in ways that conform to certain stories that we've already made sense of in order to make sense of events or at least to pattern events on something similar that allows us to have catharsis with them. But so much of this novel uses familiar types of stories and tropes that either come to baffling conclusions or come to no conclusion 
at all. Think of the fairy tale of the suitors, uh, the Ben Yahya story, the story at the end of the novel. Even the St. Brandon story, which I will mention here as an aside, Wolf did say uh, very clearly that the St. Brandon story about Finn McCool and the cat and the rat was a pastiche of R.A. Lafferty. Anyway, I think the point of these stories that are baffling or have no conclusions are here because Wolf is showing us again and again that though we can and the series of events that have impacted us in some way. Real life doesn't always come with satisfying closures that we go to storytelling for and that we as a culture consume ceaselessly, especially from childhood on, you know, the kind of fairy tale stories that, that we look to that form uh, our understanding of the world around us. We're still using Grimm's fairy tales to kind of do that, to explain the cruelty of people, the hope of leaving a bad situation, the wiliness of our own ability to navigate our reality. So all of that there was really an argument to say that I don't think we're supposed to know who Doris is. I could be convinced that maybe it's Sherry Gold's child. I could not be convinced that it is Weir's, unless Weir is Mr. Mason. Um, Tilly maybe could be a person who could have lived this sort of life. But I do think that when I reread the novel in a couple of years after hopefully having forgotten much of it, I will keep an eye on this sort of thing to see if there's more evidence in the novel itself that rises to the surface that makes a compelling case for for Doris being the child of some of the characters that uh, Weir has come across. But uh, I don't know. Hopefully that wasn't too rambly, though I suspect it, it was. Well, this is the episode for rambling around about puzzles and <laughs> mysteries. That's literally what we're doing here. I, I agree. I don't think that Doris is the child of Weir and Sherry. I don't think she's the child of Sherry or the child of Weir, independent of each other either. Just the that there's not enough time for her to be this old. Sherry might have gotten pregnant and given birth to a child after having sex with Weir, but that child just wouldn't be as old as Doris is. I also just can't figure out how... Doris would end up in the circus if she's the child of Sherry Gold, how she would end up in the circus in such a way that Charlie Turner knows that Weir is actually her father. Either, you know, this is a child who was given up for adoption and adopted by circus performers for some reason, or, if, or you know, I have a family who then ultimately sends her to the circus, but then no one would know the identity of that child's parents that's something that's that's protected even even in the mid 20th century and I, something that was protected so nobody would know that uh, and i also just don't think that that would be what sherry's family would do and i don't think that it's what weir would want to have had happened either so i just don't see this as a realistic scenario in this realist novel even even if the time allowed for it, which it which it does not. So again, I just don't think that this is an actual puzzle or mystery to solve. Yeah, I, 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 the, some of the arguments that people have made include that this is somebody we're supposed to know, like people think it might be Sherry and uh, Ted Singer's kid. Um, but I think, you know, some of the arguments are like playing with names that like uh, Doré means gold in French or something like that. I don't know. The point is, people have gone to extraordinary lengths to try to explain something that 
to me is more thematically relevant about uh, the tragic death of children, the way that impacts our lives, um, the way that stories don't really bring closure, even though the events end, that we have to go on living. And maybe we don't we don't get to die either. That all of this is really relevant thematically, even though it might be unsatisfying in the way that it, it, it to me, I just can't find the way that it ties back into everything, uh, to, to characters, to a character arc in the novel. And uh, that could be a failing on my part as a reader. Well, all right, let's continue to talk about Weir's relationships with people here. And uh, what is the deal with his relationship with his father? or the, you know, lack of one, at least as far as we can see in the book. I don't think this should be too much of a puzzle of mystery of the novel, um, as it's, you know, clear that Alden hardly ever thinks of his father. But I do I do want to highlight the fact that, like, this is an important absence in the novel. It's evident that Weir's father is a hunter. This comes up a lot throughout the novel. It comes up at the start of chapter three, where Eleanor says that, you know, the Chinese officer in Aunt Olivia's story sounds like John, Olivia's brother, is they're both hunters. Uh, in fact, one of the first things that we learn about John Weir is that he's shot a deer, and that deer skin is used for the fake treaty with the Indians that the Women's Auxiliary Club is writing to replace the treaty that was lost by Blaine's family's, you know... <laughs> treacherous agreement, uh, you know, with the local Indians. Uh, in chapter three, though, Weir dreams that his parents have returned and that his father is cleaning his gun. His father's going to take the dog boy hunting instead of his son. Later on, we see that Weir has uh, one home video from his father, but he can't remember what's on the tape. But the tape does say happy memories and Merry Christmas. Um, so Weir you know, must have some kind of interactions with his father enough that somebody taped one. But then there's this, and this is why this is in the puzzle and mystery section uh, of our of our show, of our wrap up. At the end of the novel, in chapter five, we get this absolutely bizarre line when we're explaining that, you know, the night in the factory is actually really scary. It's scary to be in the factory alone at night. And Weir also says this, I've been in abandoned houses in the woods at midnight. My dad was a great hunter, and he used to insist I go in, in just about every place you can think of. And there's nothing like this plant after dark. So there might be some resonance here with the Banshee story at the beginning of the novel in chapter one, you know, is Weir then the Jack who sacrificed Carl Lauren or something in order to be with Margaret? Or is he Julius Smart even, who has sacrificed somebody to be with Olivia, uh, which kind of seems more likely uh, given some of the imagery of the novel? That's a question maybe we can take up later, but suffice it to say, I've not actually solved a mystery here. I can only say that Weir thinks very little of his father, but it seems as though his father took him, if not deer hunting a lot, then maybe ghost hunting more than once. Yeah, I'd like to think that uh, this is actually where the TV show Supernatural got its <laughs> idea here, but I don't. I don't think so. I think that all that's going on here is that these are uh, backpacking trips. You're going to hunt out in the woods over a long weekend, spend one, maybe two nights sleeping out there, and that these are like maybe hunting lodges, like hunters' cabins that maybe not abandoned in some literal sense, but that are just shelters. You know, there's no electricity there no plumbing there they're just wooden structures that you can you can sleep in and that that is that is scary uh backpacking at least 
before I became a father anyway, was one of my one of my principal hobbies, solo backpacking. And I actually always found it creepier to sleep in or even near a shelter, a designated shelter, than it was for me to just un- unfurl my, my bivy sack, you know, just in the middle of nowhere. That was always much more comfortable to me than the weirdness of empty man-made structures. And uh, so I think that Wolf has captured uh, something that's just just true of my own experience here in this line. But I think ultimately what matters is that Weird does not have much relationship with his father at all. His father maybe is trying to have one, takes him on these trips where he's inviting Weir into his own hobby, maybe even his own passion. But Weir doesn't seem to be interested in any of that. In fact, one of the things that we get in the subtext of this entire story is that Weir is definitely what we would describe as an indoor kid. And maybe his dad was not, and that that was actually something of a barrier between them, that they just had a hard time relating with each other and so didn't have much of a, a close or, or intimate relationship to the extent that Weir barely writes about his father, and in fact, writes much more about Julia Smart, who I think it's fair to say also is an indoor kid because, well, that's how that's how you get to be in your basement you know, doing experiments with potatoes and so on anyway. <laughs> and uh, and also, I think it probably matters a great deal. In fact, we know it matters a great deal. Weir's parents abandoned him. He was responsible for the death of another kid as a child himself. And while that's happening, while he's having to emotionally, psychologically deal with that culpability, his parents just leave. They just leave. And... uh I don't know how you forgive your parents for that. So I think I wouldn't write that much about my dad in this book either, if that were me. There's a there's a line in in uh, the film The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou where I think Steve Zissou, you know, who's played by Bill Murray, finds out he has a kid, and he says um, something like, uh, "I never liked fathers, and I never wanted to be one." <laughs> That's kind of how I feel about Weir. You know, we get the same absence of Carl Lorne. And so any character who's actually sired children is kind of absent from the, from the text in a fascinating way. They're only brought up to highlight their accents. And I know we're not big biographers here. We're not trying to do uh, that kind of criticism. But I think that is reflected in, in Wolf's maybe own relationship with, with his father as well. That kind of it's these other... These other men that um, Weir has had to substitute to fill that gap that he feels with with his father never being around or abandoning him, as is the case, you know, with Weir in this novel. Right. It has been a, a policy of ours that we don't do biographical readings of Wolf's novels, at least not you know in a programmatic way. But just to explain what you're alluding to there, Brandon, is simply that. Wolf's father traveled for work when he was young. And so something that he has talked about in interviews and, and written about as well is that there were periods of time where he didn't see his father for a while. And yeah, we could see perhaps some of that, you know, some some of Weir's experience with that here perhaps being biographical or autobiographical, I guess, in, in that case. But it is time now, Brandon, for us to move into, well, what we've actually really buried in this episode, but is the <laughs> the big question, which is, hey, what what is this book? What is this story? Is there time travel or is we're a ghost or what is, well, what is going on here? And we are going to continue to delay answering that question (laughs) ourselves, actually Uh, continue to bury our answers to that question by going through a few, definitely only a few and definitely not all of some other Wolf Scholar's 
understanding of what is happening in this book. And we're going to start with Joan Gordon. Right. Jo- Joan Gordon wrote this awesome essay in the LA Review of Books uh, when the Orb 2012 edition came out called We Read Things Differently. This is almost like a, a flag planted in the ground of, of Wolf scholarship. And and Gordon's reading, uh, as she has both read the book when it was initially published and then reviewed it again for this LA Review of Books essay, uh, can be located within the surface of the text itself. Namely, Joan says that, as Weir does, that, uh, you know, Weir is a middle-aged man at the doctor's taking a thematic apperception test. He suffered some kind of mental breakdown. Furthermore, she suspects that uh, what has become the standard reading of the novel is actually correct, but that it doesn't matter because Wolf's rich prose and the use of metaphor are precisely designed to offer as many readings of the novel as there are readers. And what I love about Joan Gordon's reading here, and it's something that uh, you know, with the rereading Wolf guys and and the folks who um, joined the shadow of the con at Worldcon, um, we had the opportunity to spoke with Joan Gordon about this. So, what I love about this reading and what we t- I told her, you know, at this con was that this type of approach to Wolf that there are readings for every reader, and because Wolf's writing is so poetic and allows for this, ultimately allows for really a gatekeeping and barrier-free type of enjoyment to Wolf's work uh, that can sometimes feel absent, I guess, in serious business, <laughs> Wolf discussions and forums. I haven't really experienced any you know, gatekeeping or barriers in Wolf fandom. I think Wolf fandom is one of the few fandoms out there where people just want to enjoy and talk about the novels and, and come and, and tell people what they think about them. And we Wolf readers, you know, you and I, but a lot of readers can hardly afford to be too precious about our own approach to his novels if what we're doing here is trying to help expand wolf readership. But I really just want to say that, uh, you know, I I think I, as a reader, have a lot in common with uh, Joan Gordon's approach to wolf. I love wolf first as a craft technician and second as a puzzle box designer. So, I mean, unless something is textually indefensible, I'd have to say that the more approaches to a wolf novel there are, the more fun we all have in discussing it. So I love this reading. I love what it does for the fandom. And I love the idea that if you can defend your reading with words that Wolf used in the text, um, come on over. You know, the water's warm most of the time. Right. Yeah. So that's Joan Gordon's reading, which she also has in her uh, Starmont Reader's Guide, which is actually from the 1980s, uh, which means it predates what I think you just called, Brandon, the, the standard or generally accepted reading of the book, which we will we will get to here shortly. And so, yeah, she has revisited that and is, is sticking to her guns here, right? This idea, which is that Weir is not this old man who has had a stroke, but is this middle-aged person who is imagining that he's an old man who's had a stroke and and so on. I'm going to present here another reading. This is by Wolf Scholar Doug Eichste, and this comes from a publication called uh, The Peace Indexicon, uh, published by uh, Serious Fiction. This is a fantastic book that is, well, exactly what it says on the box. It's kind of an index to peace. It can help you find all of the things you are looking for when you are trying to make an argument. It's also got uh, a proposed map of Cashinsville and some some other things in it. One of the other things that it has in it is Eichstee's reading of the book. And 
Uh, I will say he actually presents more than one, but the one that I want to share with our listeners here, Brandon, is that Eichstein makes a case, makes an argument for we're, again, not being an old man who has had a stroke, but also not being a middle-aged man going through some kind of mental health crisis, but in fact, actually a boy at Olivia's house who is having visions of a future. Uh, What do you make of that, Brandon? I could see how somebody could textually defend that argument, especially given the way the book ends. I think uh, I prefer my reading to Doug Eichstee's, but we certainly have the connection of this period of time at Aunt Olivia's house associated with death, uh, particularly Weir's death, thinking he's died from this chemistry kit. And so uh, maybe he's laying on the floor having, I don't know, accidentally made uh, the you know LSD or something and is tripping out and thinking about his, his old age and imagining he's writing a book. And that would explain a lot of the timey-wimey stuff, I guess, that we, that we see in the novel. Yeah. I mean, there is textual evidence to back this up for sure. And I think it is an intriguing reading. And I really just wanted to present it here because because I think it's a real outlier to the way that people usually think about this book. I don't think that, um, well, in fact, I I know I don't think that it's the correct reading of this book. I don't think it's the right answer to the question of, you know, what is going on with this time travel astral projection business here. Uh, I should say too, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm on team Joan Gordon either, but we've got one more scholar we want to talk about before we uh, reveal, well, to our listeners, but also I think to each other, <laughs> what we think is actually happening here in this book, and, and that's Borsky's. Yeah, Borsky's reading is something I've mentioned before in our in our last episode. This can be found for free online. Uh, and I do think it's worth reading as his uh, schema for understanding the structure of the novel is something I think, you know, at least on the surface level is 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 correct. Uh, but there's much more to Borsky's reading than this than the schema. You know, by and large, Borsky finds much more of a diabolical influence in the novel and explicitly compares it uh, peace. He he compares peace to the fifth head of Cerberus, which is something we've done ourselves and we'll do uh, in the next episode a little bit. But Borsky finds that in comparing the two novels, that Wolf is relying on the idea for both these novels that the protagonist is in hell or in a hell of his own making. Perhaps Perhaps in the case of peace, Borsky actually thinks that Weir is the devil himself, that that Banshee story is somehow about Weir being born as the as the Antichrist or, you know, having some kind of, as I said, diabolical influence over his life. And while I, I do think there's lots of overlap between peace and fifth head, I don't think I can really cede the point that peace also takes place in hell in the same way that the allusions to hell are a literary device in Fifth Head to key us into, if not the physical location of the characters, then at least their psychological condition. Like Borsky and, and Joan Gordon here, uh, like Eichstee, all these readings are worth checking out in more detail if you're interested in um, a different approach to uh, the defensibility of making a literary argument than you and I have done here. But to return to Joan Gordon's point, um, even though I don't always agree with Borsky's approach or method, I like that we read things differently. You know, it always opens up uh, my enjoyment of the novel. And and that's ultimately, I think, what a lot of us are doing here is we're finding uh, an argument, a textual argument, a literary argument that is the key to our enjoyment of the text itself. And I think that that is uh, really just a, a really delightful and lovely way to approach an author that we love. 
And you said all of this that Borsky has written here is available for free online, which is is true and, and really fantastic. But he does also have a really awesome book where these articles are. Uh, that book is called The Long and the Short of It, More Essays on the Fiction of Gene Wolfe. And as you can just tell from the title, um, there's some stuff about the solar cycle, the later books of the solar cycle <laughs> here as well. So we will be revisiting that in the future. And in fact, we have used this book before when we've uh, talked about uh, cues, which I guess is an episode we did on, on Patreon. Anyway, Robert Borsky's book, Long and the Short of It, it's a great book. Pick it up. I highly recommend it. It's a, you know, it's great food for thought, though I will say, like you, Brandon, I don't agree with Borsky's reading here. I don't think that Weir is the devil or the Antichrist. I don't think this story is literally taking place in hell. I also don't think that was true in The Fifth Head of Cerberus either, but still, it's a, it's a lot of fun. But the time has come, Brandon, for us to reveal what we think about about this book. So Brandon, what do you think is actually happening here? And I'm really hoping that you're going to say that you actually just think that uh, Weir's having a stroke and is able to time travel because of it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's not what I'm saying. I do. I do think Weir. <laughs> I do think Weir's stroke was brought on by uh, the the uh, kind of emotional shock of of Sherry Gold's death. But I agree with the standard reading. The standard reading of the novel is that Weir is a ghost, and the house that he lives in, that he you know Barry meets simulation, is really a kind of memory palace. It is. Uh, uh, his own mind that continues to exist because as he points out in the metaphysical conversation uh, with Dr. Black, that matter can neither be created nor destroyed. So we go on. And as I, as I emphasized in the last episode, uh, my reading is really caught up in a kind of a, a Eastern philosophical approach with an understanding of the Wu Xing that we're is actually in the Bardo and uh, I'll explain, you know, why that comes into play with the motif of the pocket knife in a little bit. Um, but my reading is the standard one, at least about what's going on here in the novel, that Weir is dead and that this is being written basically or experienced as Weir is revisiting the immediacy of memories that uh, come up to him in his mind. The evidence, I mean, that immediacy bit is taken directly from the novel itself, um, but the evidence for Weir being dead is the fact that Mrs. Porter, who was Eleanor Bold, plants trees, uh, endangered American trees on the graves of her friends, and that the elm tree happens to be one of these, and that the elm tree breaking or falling over is Weir being released from his grave to uh, tell this story, to revisit these periods of his life. That's the standard argument as well. Uh, Glenn, I don't think you have this reading, but I, I, I don't actually know quite what your reading is. <laughs> <laughs> of this novel either. <laughs> no, I do actually agree with the standard reading. And, and you know, we are calling this the standard reading uh, because, well, even Joan Gordon calls it the standard reading. It is the one that Neil Gaiman advocates for in his afterward to this Orb 2012 ed edition, uh, although he only kind of hints at it and alludes to it because, you know, Neil Gaiman is himself a novelist and not a scholar. So he doesn't want to, you know, spoil the book for anyone. And in fact, that's why it's an afterword and not a foreword or an introduction. But he says, here are some questions questions you might want to ask yourself and then go read this book again, which um, is great advice. It's absolutely <laughs> great advice. But that's the idea. Weir is a ghost. He's a ghost. He's dead. And this story is being written or told or in some way by a ghost. But even if we 
all or most of us agree with that enough that it is now the standard or the generally accepted reading of the book. I think that there are still more questions, actually, that that reading raises. And one of them is, did Weir then really actually build a museum mansion such as we see it here that this, you know, this place that he seems to be wandering around full of all these other rooms that he has copied from other places, other houses, other buildings that he's been in, in his real life. Or is that only something that exists as this type of, of afterlife that he is in? I think he did attempt to build it. I don't think he got too far into building it. I think he, you know, we know that he got as far as Barry Mead designing the structure itself because, you know, we know that he would go over the blueprints with Barry Mead, you know, in his small apartment that that is in the text. But I, I'm not even sure, to be honest with you, if Weir ever became the president of this company or if he ever... Uh, made it out of his apartment. You know, if he just died this in this kind of obscure way, we know he made it to 50 at least uh, because he got that, that watch as a gift from Dan French and the employees of, of uh, Tang. But we don't, uh, you know, I don't know. I suspect he did make it to be president, but he could have died before then. And this house certainly doesn't have to have been built. And the house is, acts as a metaphor for all the important spaces and places in Weir's life. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not convinced that he ever built this house. Yeah, it's certainly a weird idea for a house, but we do have him talking about meeting with the architect, going over the designs. We have him talking about the property itself also. And uh, he does talk a lot about the dishwasher early on in the early on in the book as well. So I, I actually think that he did really have this house built. And I don't have any skepticism or doubt about the trajectory of his life. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't a watch, uh, he says, either. It was a, a cigar cutter or cigar lighter, silver cigar lighter. Though he also says, he doesn't remember what was actually in the box, but it was something like that. I guess, you know, cigar cutter or watch, or it could have been a pen, you know, the sorts of thing yeah. that you uh, you get your boss uh, for their, their 50th birthday, I guess. But no, I think he did really build this. I think that it's a very weird thing, uh, but I will say, I think that's going to be important for me answering the question of what happens at the end. So I'm going to punt a little bit there, uh, just like you have uh, saved a little bit for uh, what's going on with the pocket knife, which we will get to. But another question that this standard reading, the idea that Weir is a ghost and that he's been brought back to consciousness by the falling of this elm tree raises is, when is that happening? When is that part of the story set? When does the tree fall? Is it uh, the year after Weir is buried in the ground, or is it longer than that, do you think? My sense is that it could be that ages have passed, right? Because he, he has this line about are he feeling archaeologists digging up his skull right? at some point in his conversation with Lois Arbuthnot. And it could be that some of this apocalyptic imagery is uh, the new reality of his place trying to break in to his conscious life, which is just really enclosed in and enveloped in these memories of the past and that we're getting these glimpses into the world beyond his head as they, you know, the archaeologist uh, accidentally swings a rock hammer too hard and cracks a part of his skull open or something like that. Yeah, I think that image is really interesting. And it comes right after he's also pronounced that he is the last human being 
left, right? He's the only person left alive, or we might even understand that to be left conscious. And so, yeah, it does raise these questions of of when did the elm tree fall? I think we can be pretty clear that it was not, you know, the day after or the year after it was planted, because it seems to be a fully mature tree when it falls. Elm trees live they, they, well, actually, elm trees can live up to 300 years if conditions allow for that. But I don't think that uh, a cemetery would be conditions where that would happen. But I do think this is probably a century or a two, actually, after Weir has been buried. Though, of course, all of that is keeping in mind that uh, Weir wrote this book in the early 1970s before Dutch elm disease was quite the, the blight that it became in the 1980s and actually effectively killed all of the elm trees in America. So, um, that's certainly something to think about, but Wolf couldn't have known that at the time. But I think a question then, if we're saying that this elm tree you know, lived into maturity, so at least a few decades, if not a century or so, or even two centuries or so before falling, I think another question we have to ask here, Brandon, is at this point, just in terms of time in the universe, has human civilization ended at this point? I want to say yes. I mean, I don't have a good answer to that question that is that is super textually defensible, but it feels like that that is what is hinted at with all these characters' fixation, including Weir's and Aunt Olivia's, um, with death and the end of humanity. It's, it's certainly not even, well, maybe it's part of the subtext of the novel, but it's not part of the story of the novel. But I think it's in here. I think Wolf is constantly thinking about what remains from the end of a civilization and that America is just a civilization like all the ones we've studied in the past and that we're no different. We're wrong to think we're different. In fact, than you know, any other civilization, the Roman empire, you know, the Ottoman empire, the, you know, all of these great peoples that have risen and organized and, and built a civilization, we are no different. And in fact, our timeline might be on a shorter scale than, than many of those because we've invented a way to destroy all of life on earth. And we've seen this come up in, in Wolf's other stories. Um, and it is a little bit here, but maybe not so emphasized as it is in, I don't know, even something like the Book of the New Sun. Yeah, I think it actually is emphasized here in peace just as much. It's just emphasized differently because we are dealing with realist fiction here, right? But this is certainly something that Wolf very much has on his mind at the point that he's writing this book, and we've we've come up against it. And in fact, we're not done coming up against this idea either. We will, after uh, The Devil in a Forest, we will have at least one story that is about a post-apocalyptic civilization. And I think that Wolf does want us to envision here that we're as not just a ghost, but is in fact a ghost who is haunting a civilization that is is gone. That, that this is just empty land. That it's uh, it is the case that Chicago and Indianapolis are now mounds for some reason. I think the fact that the uh, the elm tree has survived suggests that it's not nuclear war. Although also I think we can maybe assume that Cashinsville isn't anywhere near some place that would be a a target. Uh, it might not be the case, right? That, that there are no human beings left, but that our civilization, our industrial civilization, has collapsed. Here, um, I will say though that I agree with you that how we answer that question doesn't really say very much about any of the themes and motifs that Wolf was actually <laughs> writing about, and that we spent a lot of time on last last episode, except for the part where hey, these apocalyptic images are everywhere in this book. 
And I'm not convinced that it doesn't resonate with some of the themes, you know, of the of the novel. This is because of my, you know, having read the the Two Hands of God by Alan Watts and becoming convinced that it is um, key in some ways to what's going on in, in peace. But we have this recurring image of, you know, Persian mythology, the Persian room comes up when Weir is looking for a place to go. And I puzzled over that, but there is this line in the two cans of God, and this is not fair play. I will say that this is pure instinct. uh, That is this, where as Weir is dead and looking for this place to go, this place of rest, um, this line by Watts might uh, key us into that. Watts says this, Perhaps the painters of Chinese landscapes and Persian miniatures have come nearer than anyone to a persuasive vision of paradise. And then to go on, he says, in the West has approached it in stained glass, in illuminated manuscripts, and in the jewelry of enamels and mosaics. But the point is that this this novel, because it is kind of focused more on the... um, Orient than the Occident, this need to find the Persian room is tied up, I think, and this this the imagery of Chinese art is tied up in, even exclu- explicitly with the Chinese egg, in paradise, in the road, the way to paradise. And so we're being unable to find this Persian room is kind of caught up in the fact that perhaps Earth is this kind of apocalyptic landscape. So there's no one where on Earth left to haunt and that we can't find this, his idea of paradise either, on, on the other hand. Um, and I just have been waiting for a moment to kind of spill that into our conversation a little bit. Uh, I hope it wasn't too much of a non sequitur. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, I think it literally segues nicely into what is next on our outline, which is what's happening here with the the pocket knife. Why does he seem to not actually want to find his his pocket knife? Well, this is again tied up in this kind of east Eastern or, or Oriental philosophy. Orient's too big. The Eastern philosophy uh, that I've been kind of harping on here is that th- that you cannot move on from this life in uh, especially philosophies and religions that have emerged from uh, Confucianism and Confucian wisdom, but maybe particularly in Buddhism, you cannot move on to this life from this life while you are still carrying around objects of attachment. And these represent our attachment to time and place and people that you need to let go of. So to me, this pocket knife is this object of attachment that keeps Weir trapped in the bardo. If Weir finds it, he might have to let it go again or let go of the emotions that carrying it represent to him. Maybe they represent one good Christmas or a relationship with a woman that he let fail because he let a lie dictate the course of that relationship. Maybe the pocket knife represents a core attachment to a time or a place or even more objects that key us into really why we can't move on, either from his past traumas, if we're not taking the ghost reading, or move on to that Persian room or the afterlife uh, in the reading that you and I are suggesting. So I think that Wolf has put this motif of the pocket knife in the novel to really remind us that Weir is too attached to too much of his past and that this object is a representation of that and that finding it would mean a confrontation with that. And that's something Weir actually can't do. Emotionally, he can't do it. Yes, I think that this is, is is largely right. It's broadly right, Brandon, this idea that Weir is really attached to 
materiality, right? We've, we've talked about uh, a lot. We have talked a lot about how, how much in this book is about the material culture of these different eras of American history, which I find super fascinating as a, a trained historian, but I think also is meant to tell us something about Weir as someone who is really attached to objects. He's also really attached to places, right? So in both these instances and both cases, he's really attached to the physicality of the world. But he's also still grappling with all of these traumas, right? That's a big part of of what this book is about. It's the main part of what this book is about is that he's he's still grappling with all of these traumas. He hasn't come to terms with them yet. And we do have two questions left here on our outline here on our for our puzzles and mysteries episode before we wrap this one up and and then uh, eventually we'll record our final episode on on peace. But these last two questions I think might really be intertwined. So maybe I'll just pitch them here together Brandon and you can address them in whichever order or just as intertwined as you uh, as you want here. But the questions are, why is this book called Peace, right? Why is that the title of the book? And also, what happens or what is happening at the end when Weir hears Olivia's voice over the intercom saying, you know, are you, are you still awakened there? Well, I think that Peace is an ironic title. It's something that Weir cannot have. He can't find, though the way he's going about finding it makes it... Um, impossible that he'll ever get it, at least maybe in Wolf's cosmological uh, or religious explanation of the universe. Um, also a play on, you know, requiasca and in, in Pachem, these are the rest in peace phrase that is put on uh, many a tombstone. But I think what happens at the end is this. This is what the, the idea that Weir is looking for something to return to where he felt safe and secure you know, and that call back to Anto, from Aunt Olivia is the call for Weir to return to a time in his life when he was a child and to relive these same events over and over again, even though he has to go through the rest of his life to return to this moment that he loved, you know, which is when he was reading stories in his aunt's house and and things hadn't piled on, you know, it, he doesn't want to return, I guess I should say, to the point back to his fifth birthday before Bobby Black dies to try to change that from happening. That's not where he wants to return to. He wants to return to the summer in his life when he had a bunch of dads who included him in their own lives, even if it was just to court his aunt. And to me, this is like the, the, the tra- if you're looking for a tragic gut punch of the novel, it's this, that what Weir thinks about returning to is a time when his aunt ate pickles for lunch and he took care of, you know, Sun Sun and Ming Snow and he just had some dads around. And even though he knows what he has to go through to return to that moment, he's willing to do it. And it's really, really sad, right? That's what I think happens at the end of the novel. And that's what we're supposed to take from it, that this is a man who who would live through all of these tragedies again, who wouldn't even try to change the tragedy that kicked off the trajectory of his life, but a man in search of being a part of even a small family and having one more carefree summer as a 12-year-old. Metaphysically here, Brandon, do you think that this is actually what's going to happen, that that Weir's soul here is going to get sent back into his 
nine-year-old, 10-year-old body in order to to do it all again, maybe to have the, the possibility, the, the option, the ability to make different choices? Does that line up with your, your reading of this as the bardo? No, it doesn't. I think he's, he's going to live through it. Um, he's going to revisit it in, in a way that is not like you know, like big or something like that, you know, like it's not, it's not like a, a wishing machine that he's like, gets to be small again after he d- does something. Um, but that he, he's looking to emotionally return there as a ghost. Like this is the not letting go, right. That this it's, he's like, he just, I don't know. He just can't let go. And he wants, this is the best he can do to feel good about his life again is what I think. Is, is going on. So it's really, it's really a ghostly sort of return where maybe he gets to observe, but not change these memories. And, and, you know, in our next episode, I'm going to read a passage, one of my favorite passages that I've already read once, but I think is so key to this novel about the memories of childhood and why this summer is so important to Weir. I cannot dispute the, uh, significance of having some dads in in Weir's life. I think that's a big part of why, well, chapter two is so much of the book. It's, uh, I don't know, my three dads or my four dads, I guess, maybe <laughs> if we're thinking of chapters two and three together, which might have been an alternate uh, title for this book before Wolf decided on, <laughs> on peace, which is obviously the better title. I agree with you completely that it is ironic. It's sadly ironic, right? It's the thing that Weir cannot have, but it's the thing that he's looking for. It's the thing that he needs. And I think for me, my answer to the question of what happens at the end, or really what is happening at the end, is that, well, maybe like you, I guess, Brandon, that Weir is going to get a chance to go do all of this again in some way. But my reading of this is less as a bardo, though I don't think that that has to be excluded here, but to think of this more in Christian terms as purgatory. And what's happening here is that before Weir's soul can enter into heaven, it needs to be purged of what happened in this wicked material world, and that Weir needs more help with that than most people do for reasons that are obvious, I guess, in in the the narrative. And so he's going to go do all of this again, not in a real sense, but in here in purgatory to try to, well, be purged of of all of this before then he'll be able to finally enter into heaven. It's possible that he's been through this a few times already. And here I have in mind something that I've talked about on the air before, and this is back when we did Four Lesson, and uh, I did say last time that I would be bringing Four Lesson <laughs> up again, because my reading of Four Lesson also was that that was purgatory, and that what I invoked there in 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 trying to make that case for seeing Four Lesson as a story about purgatory was a short story by Tolkien called Leaf by Niggle, which I won't summarize in any particular detail here, other than to say that it is uh, a a fantasy writer, a speculative fiction writer who Wolf really, really admired and really liked, uh, grappling also with this idea of purgatory and thinking about people having to do it again and do it again and do it again until their soul is right and ready to get into heaven. And the stories feel very similar to me. Peace for Lesson, Leaf by Niggle. I mean, they have real differences, but they all feel like, uh, you know, peas in a pod to me. You're right. I think the Bardo and the Purgatory and that Purgatory have a lot of overlaps uh, conceptually in terms of approach to the readying of the soul for uh, the afterlife. And that uh, I think, I don't know, it's fair to read it both ways. Uh, we should probably end our episode here. So that's going to do it. Once again, I'm, I'm Brandon Buddha. 
And I'm Glenn McDorman. This has been a heck of an episode, but we are still not yet done with uh, our coverage of peace. Next time, we will be back to talk about writing craft and, and also just to have a little bit of fun with the, the novels that we're going out on, uh, I don't know, less of a contentious note than probably this episode <laughs> struck for, for many listeners. Uh, before we take our leave of this episode, though, I do want to remind listeners about our new stretch goal on Patreon to cover the Neil Gaiman, Gene Wolfe co-authored little book called The Walking Tour of the Shambles, a uh, weird fiction guide to a imaginary neighborhood in Chicago. This will be a team-up episode. The hosts of our Neil Gaiman show, the hosts of our Gene Wolfe show, and uh, hey, all three of us have or do live in Chicagoland. So it's, uh, I, I think, a book that will really, really matter to us, something that we'll get to have an awful lot of fun with. So uh, I hope people will join us on Patreon or increase their pledges on Patreon to help us reach that stretch goal. But until next episode, we will say we greet you and say farewell. <laughs> <laughs>